You know, I just think as we sing that song, it's only appropriate that we put in our minds two images from the Bible. One in the Old and one in the New Testaments. Let your mind go to the place where Isaiah stands before the throne of God. And he sees Christ. And his robe fills the temple. And what did he hear them saying? Holy, holy, holy. Repeatedly, this praise rises. And then the mirror image, John, on the Isle of Patmos, looking into the future, seeing the rainbow of colors from every ethnic group under the sun, standing before the throne, and God reveling in, Christ reveling in the praise of the angels and of His people who say there's no one worthy except you. You're the only one. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, now standing as one slain, standing victorious, lifted high on the praise of His people. These things ought to fill our minds as we sing. And we ought to join in. I think that's what it means to join in the praise of heaven. The angels themselves look at the worship of God's people and it causes them to worship Him because of how mighty and great He is. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Christ, the summation of all things. And we've been in and out of the passage, so I want to kind of go back with you through three and, and following to kind of bring this thing into, into focus and then, then into our verses. So what we have in verse 3 is a, is a catch-all verse. It's a verse that Paul writes, it, it's, it's in the fashion of an Old Testament praise to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with all spiritual blessing. This, that's where you would expect, if you were a Hebrew, if you were a Jew in Ephesus, hearing this read, you would expect that's the end of it. That's, that's the way our, our forefathers praised God, and now he's gonna go off into his letter. But, he, he gets, it's, he gets the, he gets caught up in it. It's okay to summarize it, but then it's like his mind goes to the place where he says, no, I wanna tell you what the spiritual blessings are. I don't want to just say he's blessed us with all spirits. I want to tell you about them. And then he tells us about the past spiritual blessings which God has blessed us with in verses 4 through 6. The past blessings of God towards us. He chose us, his election, in him before the foundational world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us. That's a past event. It's happened. He predestined us for adoption. It's a, it's a past event being lived out in the reality of the day, but it's a past event. In the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved One, Jesus Christ. Present reality blessings which we are still now seeing unfolded. Paul would say, in Him we have redemption. Redemption is a present reality. It's a blessing which is occurring right now. It's happening right now. In the redemption through His blood. Blood meaning the sacrifice. The life is in the blood. So when you read in Scripture that the blood of Christ 
is our propitiation. The blood of Christ is our sacrifice. When you hear the writer of Hebrews say, sin has to be paid for with blood. There can't be forgiveness without blood. What he's saying is without the life of another, a perfect one, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Okay? It's not a mystical sprinkling blood. It's not fairy dust. Blood is life. So what he's saying when he says he shed his blood is he gave his life. He shed his life for us. That's a present reality. We are forgiven of our sins through the blood, the life of Jesus Christ. It continues, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us, the blessings of wisdom and insight. That's happening right now. It's a present reality. He chose us. He predestined us. He adopted us. Now He has redeemed us. And He has lavished onto us wisdom and insight. Future blessings. Verses 9 through 10. That's where we are today. Now He's making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. Which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. Here it is. The future blessing. To unite all things in Him. Things in heaven. And things on earth. And so, we're at our text. Now, the paragraph neatly breaks up in 9 and 10. And then there's a break and then it flows into 11 and 12. I've combined, and I'm going to admit up front, the, the text goes through 12. I'm glad Ann uh, didn't, didn't print. Uh, she's out of town. She didn't print. Because... You'd have got a third point that I'm not going to preach today, okay? But it'll be next week. It's verse 12. I'm not going to get there. I'm telling you up front, okay? I'm not going to get there. But this is what it says. Verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven, things on earth. In Him, in Him, the ESV reads, we have obtained an inheritance. We're going to talk a lot about that phrase today. It's a difficult phrase to understand. Having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. The first thing I want us to see in verse 9 and 10 is that God is bringing... All things into reconciliation with Himself through and in Christ. God is bringing everything into reconciliation with Him in and through Jesus Christ. Making known to us the mystery of His will. Last time we were in Ephesians, we talked about that a lot. Especially the word mystery. And what does it mean? What does it mean? But today I want to kind of recap it. Bring it back in front of you. I think it's a difficult concept, so we, we may talk about it a little bit more today. Paul is telling us that God is revealing what was previously hidden in the redemptive plan. What was previously not made clear in the redemptive plan. The Old Testament saints didn't have a grasp of what you and I have a grasp of through the New Testament writings. They didn't fully understand that God, how God they knew He was going to do it. Passages in Isaiah, like Isaiah 61, make it clear that God's going to make everything right. But how will He make it right? That would be the question. And that's the mystery. How will He make things right? And here's the two parts of the mystery. God is redeeming the elect, the church, in Christ. 
And God is reconciling the entire universe to Himself in Christ. The in Christ part of it, the in Christ part of it is the mystery. If we make it simple, it's that how God would accomplish what He was going to do was the mystery. They did not fully understand it. They didn't know to what extent He would reconcile things. I don't know. I don't think. They saw it. Unfortunately, they saw it dimly and they understood it to be the Jewish people. They had a physical, ethnic identity with the Jewish people. That's who God's going to redeem to Himself. The Old Testament saints, bought. They, that's what they understood. And yet, Paul is saying, it's not just the Jews, it's all the church. The Jews and Gentiles will be reconciled, will be made right. And they'll be reconciled to one another, and they'll be reconciled to God Himself in the church. And he's going to expand that in chapter 2. Verses 11 through 22. So I won't spend a lot of time on that today, but that is a miraculous. We take that for granted. That is a miraculous occurrence. That God would reconcile Jewish people and Gentile people into one body. It was beyond their comprehension. It was beyond human ability. Nobody could do this in their minds, but God can. That's the first part of the mystery. The second part... All of creation is being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, so many people around us, and some of you maybe, and I don't mean to be scolding, but it may feel scolding when I say this. So many of us, and the people around us, and the culture around us, have a pessimistic view of where the world is headed. A pessimistic view. But we have hope. Of all men on the earth, we have hope. God is not failing in bringing all things to a climactic end, which will end with Him being God of heaven and earth, and all things being made right in Him. God is not failing at that. We are failing to hold that hope out a lot of times, because we've fallen into the pessimism that we live in, and this dark view of where the world's headed. But we are the ones who have hope. All things are being brought to the end that God desires them to be brought to. Listen, the humanists and the evolutionists and the sociologists tell us that the world is random, it's controlled by fate, and without it is without an ultimate purpose. But we are not humanists, nor are we evolutionists, nor are we uh, sociologists. We are Christians. And so when we hear that, we should say, the alarm bell should go off and say, listen... All things are going to be made right. Nothing is whimsical or made by chance. There is no fate or luck in the universe. God is working His plan. His predetermined, well thought out plan. He's doing it. And He will not fail. It's that kind of faith that the world needs to see from us, church. That's the kind of faith they need to hear from our lips. Is that, oh, it's not a denial. Oh, yeah, it's bad. But listen, God is going to make this right in Christ. He is doing it. Now He is doing it. And He will end it all summed up in His Son, Jesus Christ. If we look at the fact that in Christ, believing Jews... You you might say, Carlton, that's all great and good for the end time. 
God throws a Hail Mary at the end of the game and wins. Okay, we get it. But right now, everybody's getting killed. Everybody's dying of cancer. Everything's falling apart. The world is at war. What will we do? You know, that's us. we're, We're dwelling on the pessimism. And what we need to do is rise above the pessimism. Not into a non-reality, but into the heavenly reality. And that is, though I don't understand the game plan, it is predetermined. And everything that is occurring right now in the universe is occurring at the sovereign pleasure of a good God. And we can be frank with the world. I don't understand it. We can be frank with the world and say, my mother has Alzheimer's and has suffered under that weight for almost a decade. And I look at her as the shell of the woman she once was. And I don't get what's going on. I don't understand it. I can't explain it to you. But I can tell you this. There will be a day when my mom is whole. And Christ will make all things right. I don't understand why one of my dearest friends is suffering under the weight of cancer and his whole family. I don't get it. I don't understand it. But I know this. It's not happening by fate. And it's not some random rogue cancer cell. Our God is in heaven and he's doing what pleases him. And I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow, but I can tell you this, whatever happens tomorrow, is under the control of a loving and good God. That's what your neighbors need to hear from you. That's the kind of hope that they don't have. That's not a denial of reality. Listen, Dave Swinney may die from cancer. And you and I need to to understand that's reality. It could happen. But whether it does or doesn't, does not change who God is. It does not change that in this case, in this situation, He is gaining great glory for His name. It doesn't change that we have a merciful and good God. We don't need to be pessimistic. We don't need to be unrealistic. We need to be hopeful believers in the name of Christ. And we need to say... Our God is in heaven, and He's doing exactly what pleases Him. Your neighbor needs that. Your co-worker needs it. Your relative needs that. They need to see it. They need to taste it. They need to feel it in every part of your life. And you say, but how can you be that hopeful? Because God has put on display an event, believe it or not, greater than the defeat of cancer. God has put on display for us and we are seeing. And I am so thankful for the testimony uh, that we heard this morning about how the college ministry has borne fruit. It, it, it thrills me. You know why? Because that event speaks louder than pe- cancer dying, uh, people dying from cancer. The event that a dead Gentile would be made alive in Christ and united to her brothers and sisters in Christ from every ethnic group on the face of the planet, that reality is greater than the reality of cancer. They say, how can you have hope about the end time? Because God's saving the church right now. So I have hope. I have hope. 
I believe. I've seen proof and evidence of His work. And then you go down the list and name the names, starting with yourself. He saved me. How do you believe He can whip cancer? He saved me. That's how I believe it. What evidence do you have that these wars are going to end the way you want? I don't know if they're going to end the way I want them to end, but they're going to end the way God has planned them to end because He saved a wretched worm like me. That's what Paul's saying. The mystery of the will of God is being unfolded in front of our eyes in Christ, and He is making all things good and all things right in His Son. He's summing it up. He's bringing it together. These are verses of victory. These are verses to be shouted from the, verse, from, the, from the steeples of our churches and from the heights of the mountains. Our God is reigning and He is ruling and He is winning. He is not losing. And so we look and we see that the mystery of how God would save the church is being revealed and it's being brought into one body under His headship for the glory of God. And we say, God is Doing all things well. And then we begin to grasp better the mystery of how God can make all things new in His Son. Look, at uh, if, we, if we look at Ephesians 2, and I don't want to preach that because that's what we're going to preach in time, okay? We're going to get there eventually. Therefore, 2.11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus. There it is. Paul says, you want to know how God's going to make all things on a cosmic level right? Look at the church. Look at the church. And read promises like Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21. Where the Apostle Paul says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What is this world waiting on? It's the creation. What is it moaning and groaning for? For the last of God's elect to be changed and saved. Because it's then, look, it's then that they will receive, the creation will receive what it's longing for. What is it longing for? Well, the creation was subjected in verse 20 to futility, not willingly, not because it did something wrong, but because of Him who subjected it, God subjected it, in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. The view that I'm trying to teach and live myself and I want you to live is this. I can't answer to you when hurricanes hit, why they hit, where they hit and why people that they hit die and live in flooded villages. I can't explain those things on a micro on a micro level, a near level. But on a big level, I can say this. The same God who's saving His church is going to make hurricanes go away. They won't exist in the new creation. He is going to make cancer go away. He is going to make death a non-reality. He is going to make the universe reconciled to Him perfect again and free from the bondage of our sin. And the creation is going to inherit the hope of our inheritance. The creation is going to inherit 
our inheritance, which is the new heaven and the new earth. God is not only saving the church, but he's reconciling the entire cosmos through his son, Jesus Christ. So, God being, is being presented to us in verse 9. The mystery of His will is being presented to us as the death, the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ Himself. That's the mystery. How God would do it. It's being revealed. It is revealed. It is no longer a mystery. It is no longer a mystery. Paul is not saying now, we believe, now because of what we've seen, we understand everything. No, we will never understand every minute detail. But we understand all needed to understand. And that is that God is doing all He is doing in His Son Christ. Our God is bringing everything in heaven and earth under the sovereign reign of His Son, Jesus Christ. And in doing this, He's setting the world right again. He's making it perfect again. He's making it glorious and free of all sin and death. And He's doing it in Christ. That's what verse 10 tells us. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. The things in heaven and the things on the earth. God is dealing with all the rebellion of the universe in His Son. Secondly, in this text, verse 11 tells us that God has given us as an inheritance to Himself in Christ according to the sovereign plan of God. Now I told you, the 11, verse 11, would give us some fits. Because you read, when I said He gave us as an inheritance to Himself, you remembered that it says we obtained an inheritance. So I want to face that head on. The phrase in this translated for you, in Him we have obtained an inheritance, is very difficult to understand. The language is so difficult. We're dealing with a passive verb here. A passive verb. When you get passive verbs, you struggle to understand who is in view and what is being done. Okay? A passive verb simply means somebody on the outside is working on another outside themselves. The, the one being worked on is not involved in the action. It's difficult. <laughs> What's going on? So the, we have two choices. Is this verse in 11 saying that we have an inheritance which we will obtain? Obviously, that's what the ESV translation believes. Or does it mean that we have been set apart as an inheritance for God? Both ideas are in the Bible. Both are biblical ideas. There is an inheritance for believers. And we talked about it in verse 5. Look back up in the verses. He predestined us for adoption as sons. He didn't use the term inheritance there. But if you're a son, you get a what? An inheritance. He's already talked about our inheritance. And now I call your attention to verse 18. The second prayer in chapter 1, the chapter 1 is made up of two prayers, 3 through 14, 15 through uh, 23. Two prayers. Look in verse 18. It says, having the eyes, he, this is the prayer, Paul, the first prayer is a, Paul, is, a, is, a, is a prayer from Paul to God. 
praising God, thanking God. The second prayer that begins in verse 15, goes into the chapter, is what he wants God to do for the Ephesians. Okay? It is the application of the first prayer. All these things we give you thanks for now, make them a reality in your people. That's what that's what's going on in chapter 1, okay? So look at verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 11 We have to make a decision. Is God saying the saints get an inheritance? Or is God saying through Paul, we are God's inheritance? Whew, that's a tough one. And I'll say up front, I'm not 100% sure which way it is. And I don't think anybody's 100% sure which way it is. There are two possibilities, and I think if you side on either side, you can make an argument. I'm going to argue that we are God's inheritance. Look what it, here's the reasons. Here's the reasons I have. First, if we interpret the phrase as we were made a heritage of God, an inheritance of God, it is more consistent with the use of the verb, which means heritage or lot. One who is set apart for another. It makes more sense. That's what the verb itself means. So, that's one reason why I think we should interpret it as we are God's inheritance. Second, it makes more sense that we were predestined to be the possession of God, not that we were predestined to receive an inheritance. Predestination generally is dealing with God's work so that we would be made into the image of Christ. Again, that in itself points to we are being inherited by God. We were being set apart to God. That's what he said in Romans 8. Is we were predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Set apart in a lot. That's what he predestined. That's what he predetermined. Okay? And I just I think the idea of predestination makes more sense if we are being made the possession of God. Third reason. It, the translation squares better with the grammar. In this text, this is why. If we make this what we, what we receive in an inheritance, then what we should read is, we were made partakers of an inheritance in order that we might praise Him. Okay? And that's okay. That's, that's an okay translation. But listen to this. If we understand this phrase to teach that we are God's inheritance, then it would read this way. We are God's possession in order that we might praise Him. Praise is impossible for lost men. But if we are set apart as God's possession for Himself, now we are freed to praise. So what God predetermined to do was set a people apart so that they might praise Him. He desires to receive praise from His people. It's impossible unless He makes them His possession. Unless He makes them alive. Fourth, If we translate the phrase to be about the believer's inheritance, then it is simply redundant of what we have already received. He's already told us our inheritance is redemption. Our inheritance is the forgiveness of sins. Our inheritance is the sealing of the Spirit in verse 13 and 14. But if we understand that Paul is saying that we are the heritage or the inheritance of God, then this verse takes us another step in our understanding of the eternal plan of God. 
Not only do believers possess the blessings which have already been told to us in this passage, but we are God's possession because of what He has done for us in giving us these blessings. Now you say, Carlton, I'm struggling with this. We don't have a very high view of ourselves, so how then can we be anything to God? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20, God, through the pen of Moses, or through the mouth of Moses, says to Israel, I have brought you out of the iron-clad furnace, that you might and your sons might be an inheritance to me. We get the idea from the Old Testament that we are God's inheritance. We get the idea from Paul himself in Ephesians 1.18, which I already read to you. We won't read it again. But that we will understand that our eyes will be open to the fact, the mystery, that we are God's inheritance. And then we get it from him in Titus 2, verse 14, when he says this. Listen to how strikingly similar this is. Who gave Himself, God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. God sent Jesus Christ to make for Himself a possession which would be zealous for Him and for good works. And Paul, Paul says it in Titus 2, 14. Now before we move on in the sermon... And this is really the summation of the sermon. This is it. We're, we're, at, the, we're at the home run uh, section of this. Okay, This is where it comes home in power. This is it. Alright? I want you to just contemplate with me for a moment what it means that we are God's inheritance. You want to talk about having a better understanding, a more rich and full life, How could you have a more full life than when you come to understand that God loves you so much that He made you His own? You want self-worth? That's what the world wants to teach. I want you to have Christ worth. Not self-worth, not that I'm somebody, but that because He is somebody and that somebody is for me, I am now, I now belong to God. Ponder that with me. We are God's inheritance. The thought that God, out of all of the created things in this universe, has chosen to make us His possession should blow your mind. It should capture your heart to think with me about that. This is an amazing thought. God the Father and God the Son and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to let my mind go to a place that, that, that is dangerous. But I hope I don't say too much, okay? Uh, I imagine it as, as this. God said to His Son, I desire to redeem a people. And I am sending you as the ransom price, the redeeming price for them. And I imagine that Christ the Son says, What will you receive in this, you who have given your greatest possession, your son, what will you receive? And God's answer is, I will receive some from every tribe and every tongue and every ethnic group who will call on my name. I will receive glory from them. 
I, I imagine that he says to his son, when he says, what will you receive, Father? I imagine he says, I will receive a thief on a cross who in his dying breath will say, remember me in your kingdom. I will receive a prostitute at your feet who is lavishing her tears out on you and massaging you with oil. I will receive a prostitute in exchange for your life, son. I will receive to myself men who are adulterers and women who are fornicators. And I will receive mentally ill people. And I will receive those who are outcast. And I will receive the leper. And I will receive some from all the earth. I will receive the oppressed. I will receive the poor. I will receive the naked. That's my possession. That's my prize. God in His unbelievable love, treasures us. He treasures His church. It is He has fashioned a body for Himself, and now He holds it up to the whole world, mocking Satan, mocking sin, mocking the dominion of this world. These are My people. I have a treasure greater than you can imagine. They're mine. That's how God loves you. Practically, why would you ever sin against this God? You want a motivation to turn down sin? Young girls in this congregation, you want, you want to turn down the overtures of a boy who wants to possess you through romance and sex? You tell that boy you are the possession of God Almighty. You tell him you can't have me because I'm already had. You men contemplating cheating on your wives, you want motivation to not cheat on your wife? When the prostitute throws herself at you, you tell her you have something of far greater value. I'm owned by the king. I'm off limits to you. You want motivation to fight sin? This is it. You have a God in heaven who out of all the things of the universe that He owns and has treasures you. And when that sinks through into the depths of our souls, sin is distasteful. It is ugly. It is worth running from. Because we know who we are running to. You'll never be able to defeat sin as long as you view yourself as nothing but a sinner. You will be able to defeat sin at the moment that you grasp the concept that though you are a sinner, you are the possession of the King. You are the child of the living God. And He has you. Why would you give yourself to lesser things? I think about this. I have thought a lot about it this week. And I'm overwhelmed by it. That God in heaven would say that He has a possession and it is Grace Fellowship.
Gentile sinners. You're my possession. Everything in history, everything in history is for that purpose, that he might have a possession, that he might have an inheritance. And so I would sum it up like this. We are God's heritage because he predestined for us and this is according to the purpose of God who continually works out his purpose in his entire providence according to his will after he thought it out thoroughly. My mind, as we close, turns to Christ and his words to his disciples. He looked at them and said, Before you follow me, I want you to count the cost. You can't have me and the world. You must deny yourself and follow me. Okay? He was not asking you to do what he had not already done. Because what he said, after thinking it through and counting the cost, is these people that are my father's inheritance are worth my life. So he humbled himself and came in the form of a man, a servant unto death. God never asked you to do what he hasn't already done. So if you're lost here today, you say, you know, I would follow Christ, but I can't give up this. That's why you're not saved. Because you value whatever this is more than you value the one who left heaven for you. So you can't follow him. If you're here today and you're saved, you don't know you want to know why you struggle with sin, why I struggle with sin? Because we value the toys of this world and all its fleeting pleasure more than we value the one who gave up everything to own us. And so we're presenting our members to sin because we like the pleasure it gives us. All the while we have one who gave up pleasure to have us as his pleasure. God is in heaven singing over his possession. We don't like to think of God this way, but in the Song of Solomon it becomes clear that God is a lover and he is Captivated by his bride. He's singing over his bride. He's writing poetry over his bride. He is serving his bride. He is sacrificing for his bride. Everything is about the bride. And I'm not trying to detract from his glory. That is what makes him glorious. And what is the bride doing in the Song of Solomon? She is singing over her beloved. She is writing poetry to her beloved. She is denying everyone else for her beloved. 
All the kisses of Jerusalem are worth nothing when I compare it to my beloved one. She is caught up in this love affair with her, with her lover. And the Song of Solomon is all about what I'm talking about, what Paul was talking about. God loving Himself through us and us loving Him through His Son. Why would you turn this down? Why would you walk away from it? I mean, I'm, just asking, I'm asking. I really don't know why anybody would turn that down. I don't know. I'm going to leave it with you to think through. What is worth turning this relationship down for? I, I can't comprehend anything. Maybe you can help me. I'd love to talk to you about it. Call me this week. I'll buy you lunch. You tell me what's worth trading a relationship with the maker of heaven and earth in the fact that he loves you and pours his love out on you lavishly and you're turning that down for what? I just want to have a conversation, a serious conversation with you. Lost man, woman, it's, I'm not being mean. I want to understand it. Why would you walk away from this? Let's pray. Father.